Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay and by my righteous one will live by faith, and I, take no ple- and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Hebrews chapter 10, and particularly focusing in on verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. For the first ten years of my life, we had big family holidays with my mother's extended family, always at the same place in Norfolk, and we rented chalets in the sand dunes. And at the end of the holiday, we'd all pile into various cars to come home. And one year, we'd done about 20 miles on the journey home when my parents' car overtook the one that I was in. And as they passed, my mother was frantically mouthing, Have you got Elizabeth? (laughs) Elizabeth's my sister. She was then three years old. Well, all the cars pulled into into a field, and Elizabeth was missing. 
Everyone thought that she was in someone else's car. So my parents dashed off. And you can imagine it was quite a heart-stopping journey for them. Well, the owner of the bungalow had gone to check things out and found a little girl sitting on a potty. <laughs> we were all going home, but we hadn't got Elizabeth. The whole family needed to get home together. No one was saying, well, we've got 29 out of 30, that's good enough. We didn't want to go home without Elizabeth. Now, it's like that with the family of God. Our aim is to all get home together. We could never be content to leave anyone behind. The kingdom of God is about community. It always has been. God is redeeming a people. When the Israelites left Egypt by the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the Bible really emphasizes that no one was left behind. In fact, the book of Exodus puts it in a very picturesque way. It says, not a hoof, not a hoof was left behind. Abigail, who became King David's wife, put it like this. She said, we're all bound up together in the bundle of life with the Lord our God. Well, you take one stick out of a, out of a bundle and the whole bundle can fall apart, can't it? And, and we, so we learn that the local church isn't all about me. Yes, a personal relationship with Jesus is vital. It's vital that you should be walking with the Lord. But is our thinking today about church, do you think, a little bit too individualistic? We're certainly living in a very individualistic age. Do we think that we can just sort of dip in and out of the community of God's people according to our own personal taste? You see, the, the health of a local church isn't actually measured by how well it caters for the individual because we care for one another deeply in the family of God's people. We are family and we want to get home together. Now, the message of this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 is that as Christians meet and pray and pray for each other and with one another, and as we come under God's word together as we're doing this evening, then we do have a ministry of comfort and encouragement and exhortation to one another. And the springboard for that is the word of Jesus when he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, by this in particular, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this love one for another. Now that presupposes community, doesn't it? We know that the humble, self-giving love of Jesus brought him down from heaven to live among us. We know that it took him to the cross. We know that his love is a persistent love, a, a dogged kind of love, a love that never gives up. And so that is a model, the model, for our love to one another. And the New Testament gives a surprising amount of teaching about one another. If you really look at it, you'll be amazed how much emphasis there is in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, on one another. And so we're told specifically uh, that we shouldn't judge one another or go to court against one another. We should never be unkind to one another. 
We should never envy or lie to one another or speak evil or grumble about one another. We're to increase in love to one another. We have to have fervent love between us, to be kind, to be affectionate, to be like-minded, to give preference to one another, to admonish, that means to teach and to warn one another, to care for, to serve, to bear with, that means to put up with one another, to forgive one another. In our sung worship, we not only praise the Lord, but we speak to one another, don't we? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to submit to one another, we're told in the New Testament. We're to pray for one another. We're to be hospitable to one another. We're always, always to greet one another warmly. I hope you realize that when you come to church. Have a grumpy you may be feeling. Always to greet one another warmly because that's what the New Testament says we ought to be. In the first letter of John, we read that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So how precious is this fellowship which is under the blood of Jesus? I just picked up from the prayer just now that you were thinking about blood this morning, probably from the book of Exodus, I guess. How vital is that blood, both in the Old Testament covenant, especially in the New Testament covenant? One of the Puritans said there's divinity in every drop of the blood of Jesus. So how precious then is the fellowship? The Israelites sheltered under the blood of the Passover together, didn't they? They were pilgrims together as they made that journey to the promised land. So what a vision we have here. An everybody ministry. And of course it can't be done properly unless we are all on board. And so there's something about this that should be really attracting us tonight, drawing us. We live in a fractured society, in a society where uh, there's a lack of genuine community life, where many people are lonely. But this is a picture here of genuine family life. But we can't possibly live up to it, can we, unless we do see one another, unless we do meet with one another, unless we share our lives and worship with one another. You see, in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a lone Christian or a stay-at-home Christian, unless, of course, you're housebound or in special circumstances, and then Christian families should come to you as much as it can. In many of the old church covenants was this phrase, we engage to watch over one another in love. I wonder how seriously we take that in modern church life. We engage to watch over one another in love. That's everybody. That's all of us here who are believers. That's what we should be doing, watching over one another in love. So the context in this passage is drawing near to God. And the letter is written to Jewish Christians, Hebrews. And many of them had been rejected from their own families. They'd been turned out from the synagogue because they believed now that Jesus is the true 
Messiah. Now, the word synagogue means a gathering. And here are people who are no longer welcome in those gatherings. They've been told that they are outsiders now. They are losers. They've abandoned the religion of their fathers. They've lost out on the privileges of Jewish worship. But this writer is telling them, no, actually, to the contrary, he's saying, you are highly privileged people. You do belong. You can draw near to God. You come together through Jesus, your great mediator and your great high priest. Yes, we who are Christians, we do come to God through a new and a living way, through Jesus. And we can come in this passage, is teaching us, in full assurance of faith, not hesitantly, uh, not, not as losers, but in full assurance of faith in Christ. So we must hold fast the confession of our faith without swerving, without wobbling, without wavering. You see, this, this passage is... A plural passage, isn't it? Therefore, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us, for us through the curtain that is his body. It's us, it's we. We together, we share in this. We have this privilege together to draw near to God. And together we can make it. And our gatherings, such as this gathering this evening they convince us that we really do belong to the people of God. And by these gatherings, we do really encourage one another to persevere. You'd expect these Hebrew Christians to be really positive, wouldn't you, about every opportunity they had to meet, especially in that context. They'd really want to gather together and to encourage one another. You'd expect them to be there every time they could be there, wouldn't you? So in these verses, we have four actions. Three of them are positive, considering, spurring on, and encouraging. And there's one that's negative, not giving up. Not giving up, gathering together. And we're given a great reason for these actions. The day with a capital D. The day that is coming, the coming day, the day of the return of Jesus, the, the great day, the day of judgment, the day when he will gather all his children home. And we're to live, the writer says, with that day in view. And our behavior towards one another must be conditioned by that great approaching day. So let's think about the first action, which is considering, considering to pay attention. Now, the writer uses the same word in chapter 3, verse 1, where he tells us to fix our attention on Jesus. Again, it's to the whole community, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share, there's the community word, you're in this together, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Consider, consider Jesus. We have that again in Hebrews chapter 12, don't we? Where they're reminded that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us, those who are presently with us. Uh, because of this great cloud of fellow believers, 
uh, then let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily gets a grip on us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, fixing your eyes on Jesus, considering Jesus, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. There's something very focused about this, isn't there? Something very intentional about it. Something quite deliberate about it. It's the way to live the Christian life. It's the only way to live the Christian life, isn't it? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the finisher of our faith. But here in chapter 10, the writer is telling us also to consider in the same kind of deliberate, intentional, fixed sort of way to consider one another, to fix our thoughts to pay our attention to one another, to focus on how we can spur one another on in the Christian life, to love and to good works. In the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is sometimes compared to a body and sometimes it's compared to a building. The body pictures, picture emphasizes and points to the organic whole, the interdependence of all the members of the body. And the building picture helps us to realize that we're not actually adjacent to every brick in the building, but we are still part of one great building where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, look around you this evening and see some bricks that are adjacent to you, right next to you, including some brothers and sisters who may actually not be here this evening, who you may be thinking about. And there's plenty to be getting on with, isn't there? In considering one another, in one another ministry. Consider your brothers and sisters. Pray for them. Try to work out how you can bring some word of action or, or action of comfort and encouragement to them. Be creative, be compassionate about helping them to persevere because it's very important that they get home as well as you. Maybe they're a bit inclined to be sleepy, a bit sleepy spiritually. Or maybe you think perhaps they are. Could you be an agent to stir them up or to encourage them, to spur them on to love and to good works. That's what the Christian life is, isn't it? Love and good works. Love comes first, and the good works follow. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the good works follow out of the love. Let us consider how, the writer says, to stir one another to love and to good works. You see, if we're thoughtless about one another... Well, that's a kind of indifference, isn't it? It's a kind of selfishness. And it's not being nosy or intrusive to think about what gifts your brothers and sisters in Christ may have or what temptations they may be under or what dangers they may be facing or what heartaches or what trials they may be going through. Always, surely, as you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll want to encourage them. Sometimes you'll need to warn them. Because we do belong to one another in Christ. We are bound up together. 
in the bundle of life with the Lord our God. And we don't want to leave anyone behind, do we? So that's the first thing. Consider one another. Focus your attention on one another. The second action is spurring one another on. Other versions have the phrase stirring one another up. In the King James Version of the Bible, the word is provoke. Let us consider one another, it says, to provoke to love and good works. Well, provocative behavior isn't usually a good thing, is it? We shouldn't uh, provoke our children, the Bible says. That's good news, children, isn't it? Your parents shouldn't exasperate you. On the other hand, you shouldn't exasperate them either. But it's interesting that it does say that first, that the parents shouldn't provoke their children. But the Apostle Paul says that he wishes that he could provoke his fellow Jews to become Christians. He'd love to be able to do that. There is such a thing as good provocation. Have you ever tried to get a sleepy teenager up in the morning? Well, you might need something provocative. You might need a cold, wet flannel in some cases. Or you might just need a, a warning. You're going to miss your bus if you don't get up in the next five minutes. Or you might need an incentive. We're cooking bacon and eggs. That might work better for some. But whatever, it's, it's provocation, isn't it? It's kind of encouragement. Strong encouragement. And the purpose is to stir them up into, into action. You want to see them actually moving. So we need to be able to provoke one another to love and to good works. In, at the beginning of chapter 13, we read, let brotherly love continue. We, well, we know those words, but I wonder whether we've really lost some of their practical force today. We're quite used to being helped and comforted and encouraged by the preached word, aren't we? We sit in church and mostly we see the backs of one another's heads as we listen to preaching. And it's a comfort to us and it's encouragement to us. But that's not the sum total of church life, is it? Not by any manner of means. As I say, the New Testament is full of this every believer teaching. And it's one of the great reasons that we meet together. One of the great reasons why we're here tonight. To stir up in one another true fellowship and prayer and concern for one another. And earlier in this letter, the writer has, commended these, has commanded these Hebrews uh, to love one another and commended them uh, for the love that they have shown for the name of Jesus in serving the saints, it says. It's interesting, isn't it, that you can show your love for Jesus by the way you serve the people of Jesus, by the way you look after them, your brothers and sisters. So we've had considering, we've had spurring one another on. And then thirdly, we have the, the negative, not giving up. <coughs> Perhaps you say it quite often, oh, I give up. Very easy to say that when you're discouraged. A kind of admission of defeat. And it's sad in many walks of life. 
in the Christian life, it's disastrous. And what is given up here, specifically in the context, is meeting together. Don't give up meeting together, the writer says, as is the habit of some. Again, another version uses the word neglect. Don't neglect meeting together. There's something very sad about neglect, isn't there? A fine palace that has fallen into ruins, a a neglected garden, a willfully neglected child. And earlier in this letter, the writer said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we ignore such a great salvation... Perhaps I can just break off to speak to anybody here who's not yet, not yet saved. Are you ignoring? Are you neglecting this great matter of your salvation? The salvation of your soul? You are living in a time of gospel opportunity, a time of good news. God says to you, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Jesus Christ saves us freely by his grace, by his one atoning sacrifice on the death, and death on the cross of Calvary. And through repentance and faith in him, you can be saved, saved from wrath, saved from hell, saved from despair, saved from death, saved from yourself. And Jesus freely invites you to come to him just as you are. Come unto me, he says, All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. What an invitation. How gracious. How open it is. And you, you are welcome to come to Christ just as you are. But don't neglect it. I plead with you, don't ignore this great salvation. Don't turn your backs on it. Don't delay it. Don't push it away from you. It's a dangerous thing to do. Don't Harden your heart, because today is a day of salvation. But also, don't harden your heart against the gatherings of God's people. That can happen. It does happen. The writer here sees a community whose faith is in danger, and he's talking about their habits. Meeting together as and when we can is a very good habit, isn't it? Uh, To drift to give up on meeting together, to get patchy about it, uh, to neglect it without good enough reason, well, that's a, a bad habit. And it's clear amongst some of these Hebrews, in spite of all the circumstances, there were some who had got into the habit of not being there when the other believers were there. Now, that's an easy thing to happen, isn't it? Easy thing to happen for any of us. You say, well, why would that be? What reasons might they have for not being there when the other believers were there? Well, I can think of three main ones. I think in their case, especially, the fear of persecution must have been a real issue. You see, when we meet together, we do make a profession of our faith and our community life together, our family life, becomes visible, doesn't it? It becomes public. We're making a a public statement. And this can bring suffering. And it did for these Hebrew Christians, didn't it? In years to come, it may become more of a reality for us. 
in some parts of the world today, certainly it is a reality that just by Christians meeting together, they may put themselves in danger. And we can be thankful tonight that we can meet here quite safely without that fear. But would some of you be ashamed of being identified with God's people? Would you be ashamed of saying that you go to church on a Sunday? Would that hold you back sometimes from your involvement with the, with the people of God? So one thing that could hold people back from meeting together is the fear of persecution. A second thing is just laziness. It's a real issue. Earlier in this letter, the writer has said, we want each of you, this is a quote, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, or the word is, could be translated sluggish. You've all seen slugs, haven't you? They don't move very fast. And they leave a bit of a sticky trail behind them. Don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. You know, you can get lazy about church. You can kind of become one of those people who just sits on the sidelines and kind of uh, criticizes. But we need to roll our sleeves up. We need to be willing to engage with one another, to support one another, to encourage one another. And it's easy for habits to form. Good habits can form well, but bad habits can form rather too easily so that your, perhaps your home comforts or your interests or your hobbies begin to sort of compete over the gatherings of God's people and win sometimes over time spent with your Christian family. You see, in a gathered church like this, we do actually all agree the times and occasions that we're going to gather together on Sundays and for prayer and for uh, fellowship, especially relevant to this subject, of course, is home groups, where in smaller groups we can express one another, everybody ministry, in a, in a way, one another fellowship in home groups. But surely we should want to be there as, as often as we can be, and as often as the church has agreed to be there, so that we can make the most of the opportunities that we have to edify at one another and to be edified. You know, enthusiasm in the family of God is infectious. And enthusiasm in any family is infectious. If you've got somebody in your family who's infectious in their enthusiasm, then you'll be very grateful for that. And I think in church life as well, we are very grateful for those people who are enthusiasts. Do you think you could aim to be an enthusiast about the gathering of God's people together for fellowship and for <laughs> prayer and for the preaching of God's word. So the final thing uh, that we're told, the final action here is encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. That's a very positive thing, isn't it? Not neg neglecting, that's, a, that's a negative. Neglecting is a negative thing. But to encourage, well, that. Here it, it carries the meaning especially of encouraging by exhortation. Uh, the whole letter to the Hebrews is really one 
letter of exhortation. That's how the letter ends, uh, where the writer says, I, I want you to really receive this message of exhortation. You might say, well, there's a lot of theology in the letter to uh, the Hebrews. There's a lot of uh, quite intricate stuff and detailed stuff in the letter to the Hebrews. And so there is. But the writer himself saw the whole thing as a letter of exhortation, as a message to the people. And the message especially was that they should persevere, that they wouldn't draw back. He uses that phrase quite a lot. Don't draw back, he says. Don't give up. You know, it's said of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his long ministry at Westminster Chapel that after he had preached, on a, especially on a Sunday evening, he would retire to his, his vestry, especially as he got a bit older. And there would be a whole queue of people down, down the aisle just waiting to see him. And he would sit in his vestry and uh, people would go in one by one or perhaps two at a time and speak to him. And they would very quickly come out again. And someone said to him on one occasion, well, what do you do? What do you, what do you say to them? He said, oh, I just say, keep going. Keep going. That was his message. And you can't have a better message than that, can you, in the Christian life? Brothers and sisters, I exhort you to keep going. Keep going in following Jesus. Keep going in attending the, the means of grace. Keep going in encouraging and exhorting one another. Little do you know what impact you might have on one of your brothers and sisters in a word that you might bring to them or in an action that you might show to them. A word of comfort, an action of kindness, a warning, perhaps, when you see them in danger, a Bible verse that you may give them, a Bible promise that you might share with them. Inside our English word encouragement, there's a, another word, isn't there? What is it? Courage. Courage, yes. And so that's what we can do to one another. We can put courage in one another. As we quote the Bible, as we speak with one another, as we say, can I pray for you? As we do things to help one another, we can literally encourage one another. It's good for us like David to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, especially when we're in times of trouble. But it's also good when we can minister encouragement to one another. It's quite clear that from this passage that these Hebrews had been through times of hardship and persecution. Look at verse 32. If you just glance down to your Bible in the same chapter, he says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side. There you have it again. Side by side in the Christian life. Side by side in suffering. Side by side in encouraging one another. Now, men and women and girls and boys, you and I need courage if we're going to be followers of Jesus, don't we? You need courage at school. You need courage at uni. You need courage in the workplace. You need courage at home and in the neighborhood. You do need courage 
Jesus was a man of tremendous integrity, a man of tremendous courage, moral courage. And if we're going to be his followers, we need courage too. We need to encourage one another. We need to put that courage into one another. And we do that as we meet together. We live in a rapidly changing world, don't we? A dangerous world. In some ways, quite a scary world. What did Jesus say? He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and other things he listed. But then he said, when you begin to see these things actually happen, when you begin to see these things come to pass, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. It's getting closer. Be ready. Be ready together for that. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. So you're at a railway station. You're sitting in a, a, a waiting room. You hear an announcement. You move on to the platform. You're there with all the others who want to board that particular train. And if there are some people who are still lingering in the waiting room, but by the fact that you move out of it, it encourages them to move out of it. It gives them the signal. They know that the train is coming because you are getting ready for the train to come. And now you're all on the platform together and you crane your necks and you see the train approaching. You see, there are some behaviours that are consistent with that approaching train. And there are other behaviours that would not be consistent with that approaching train. Meeting together as Christians is a behaviour that is consistent with the approaching day of the Lord. The fact that Jesus is coming. He's definitely coming. His coming is near. But one day it will be here. And the big question is, will we be ready? Will we be ready for his coming? And do we understand that everyone's perseverance is, in a sense, the responsibility of everyone else? It's not just the pastors. It's not just the elders. It's not just the deacons. Everybody's perseverance is, in a sense, the responsibility of everyone else. So is there somebody that perhaps you could help Maybe no one else can help that particular person, but you can. Let's be ready together. Let's not leave anyone behind. And in particular, let's not leave Elizabeth behind. Amen.